0: This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lamb. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lamb.
1: Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society from politics to pop culture and beyond and today good faith fam i am beyond excited to welcome on one of the most impressive thinkers i've had the pleasure to befriend over the past year uh we met over a mutual love of biblical hebrew but quite quickly a friendship blossomed around the mutual love of learning and a sense of rootedness in tradition and a yearning to see that tradition speak to the the breadth and depth of the human experience. He's a professor of Catholic studies at DePaul University. He's my friend, Scott Morangelo. Okay, so uh, let's set this up. We've started talking in the pod lately about the book of Leviticus. And one of the early, extremely underrated moments you encounter is in chapter nine, when the Bible tells us about the very first day that the tabernacle was actually used for service. A very ancient Jewish comment on scripture, nearly 2000 years old, marked the profound significance of that day by exclaiming that the joy accompanying it had not been felt since the very first day of creation. Now, exegetically speaking, there are very good reasons to tie the creation of the world and the tabernacle together. In fact, both in Leviticus and Exodus, the Hebrew vocabulary used to describe the tabernacle is very similar, in some cases identical to that used in Genesis to describe creation coming uh, coming soon, possibly to a why read the Bible and Hebrew thread near you. Um, but what's the purpose of this comparison? Now, perhaps the best answer I've ever heard was from uh, my grandfather of blessed memory. He explained that the purpose of creation and the purpose of the tabernacle are the same, to bring God closer to this world. And accordingly, as my grandfather wrote in 1972, and it's one of my favorite quotes from him, he says, to sanctify God's name means to bring him closer to man. To desecrate his name is to create a distance between God and man. And one way to phrase the ambition of modernity might be, in the words uh, of the Hebrew poet, Euda Leib Gordon, to be a man in the streets and a Jew at home which I object to, but while I can understand the impulse behind the sentiment, I think whether you belong, as I do, to the Jewish community or whether you belong to any faith that takes tradition seriously, I think that the streets actually have been worse off for this attitude. And in fact, our goal should be to bring the beauty and dignity of our respective traditions into the proverbial streets, whether those streets be literature, politics, psychology, or even pop culture. Uh, And that's a lot about what we talk of on this podcast, but how to do that, What does it look like to grow up with a tradition confronting sometimes with ambivalence, other times with excitement, the wide world around us? And so to unpack this, I brought on a dear friend who, like me, uh, experienced this growing up in a proud religious community in New York, but who, unlike me, is Catholic. And I'm just beyond fired up to talk this through together because I think something really exciting will emerge from it. So without further ado, I'm so happy to welcome aboard Professor of Catholic Studies at DePaul University and my friend, the brilliant, erudite, amazing, Scott Morangello. Scott, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so
2: much. I'm really honored uh, to be part of the conversation. When, um, uh, in high school, when I walked to Regis High School from the 86th Street subway station, to 84th street and i passed the ramaz school every day little did i know that i was going to be on the most popular jewish podcast (laughs) in the world
1: but here i am exactly um and actually that's exactly where i wanted to start because you're one of my favorite catholic academics i love your work i love your perspective um but before we get into the issues i i actually want to talk about how you got here like i know this is unfashionable but but so much of scholarship is autobiographical, and since mm-hmm. uh, so much of what I want to talk about today is scholarship in action, I think it's important to kind of excavate the process by which you got here. And and you and I actually kind of grew up in similar circumstances. Young mm-hmm. kids from New York, grew up in a religious tradition. But what was your journey from where you started to here?
2: Sure. So I uh, was born in Brooklyn, and so we moved out. So we moved to Long Island when I was a little kid, and I went to the kind of local. Catholic parish school. And I did well there. And then I took a test to go to, uh, and then an interview to go to Regis High School in New York City. Uh, And that's kind of where everything kind of kind of got going for me academically. And there was a teacher there named John Connolly. I've mentioned him in other contexts before, but he kind of like was super influential to so many of us. So like the novelist Phil Cly studied with him, uh, Colin Jost of Saturday Night Live studied with him, Jimmy Shuto, who's on ABC News, or was he on CNN? CNN. Uh, Like all the, and he was like, Mr. Connolly's classmates with Tony Fauci. So like it really kind of, famous guy. And he, I think more than anyone else, for so many of us really connected what I think people today call kind of the connection between faith and reason. I don't really like that phrase quite so much, but that kind of got me on my intellectual path. So from Regis, I went to uh, Williams College where I studied philosophy and classics. I had done Greek and Latin in high school, which is pretty unusual. And then, thanks to Williams, I was able to go to Cambridge University for two years um, on a fellowship. And then from there, I did my PhD at Notre Dame. So I think I remember kind of very clearly walking to this fellowship interview at Williams, like I was like walking, you know, like I had to get interviewed for it and stuff. And I just had this kind of, you know, hey, you have these kind of revelations and I had this revelation like, well, what I want really want to study is just like everything. Uh, and that sounds, <laughs> it sounds kind of silly. And the sort of thing that when you're 22, you kind of say, but I had thought about studying going, well, I thought about going to law school. I thought about working for a venture capital firm as one does. Um, but I wasn't, if I did a PhD, I wasn't sure if I wanted to study philosophy or classics. And then I decided, well, if I study like the history of Christian theology, I get to do both. And if I study the history of Christian theology, then I also get to study literature and history as well as philosophy and classics. Uh, and so I had this kind of like epiphany when I was going on this little walk to, from one part of campus to the other. Uh, and then that kind of got me, got me going. Uh, and then after two years in Cambridge, I went to Notre Dame, and I was able to kind of continue the study of things. And now, you know, that's kind of what I do day to day, which is great.
1: And I, I like that perspective because it, it sort of twins with with my own, which is I think there's in sort of the rest of academia, at least kind of in the contemporary age, there's this relentless drive and pressure to specialize. Mm-hmm. Um, but coming out of a religious tradition that kind of looked as, looks at the entire world as the canvas upon which to paint our, our perspective. I think there's there's almost more of a natural tendency, and there's or maybe even like a, a sense of encouragement to be more of a generalist. Like we should actually strive to, as you said, like learn everything or study everything. So what I'm wondering is to take that a little bit further. So growing up, as I did in in the Orthodox Jewish community in a community to which I still belong and am extremely proud of, one of the kind of things you just encounter as you're venturing into the wide world of learning, is this sense of tension's the wrong word, because it doesn't have to be tense, but sort of this gap between, right, we have our own kind of indigenous tradition, as it were. Mm-hmm. In our case, it's sort of the study of Torah. And then you have the entire world around you. And the question is how to assimilate that into your own kind of native perspective. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that shakes out as tension. Other times it cashes out as wonder and joy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm curious from the Catholic perspective, right, because... You have your own sort of intellectual tradition Uh, in an American context, much like in an American Jewish context, like you can imagine that tradition kind of getting lost or sort of being Mm -hmm. assimilated out of your consciousness. But for someone growing up in that context, like what was it like to discover or rediscover that tradition?
2: You know, it happened in different moments. I remember, for example, he was having this empowering feeling in high school when we would learn about like. Dante, for example, or like I read, um, I read the comedy when I was a freshman in high school, which is kind of absurd, Um, but thinking like, oh, wow, like this guy's Italian. And I, like, remember telling my grandma – I remember telling my grandma that I was reading Dante. And my grandma never read Dante. Like, you know, um, she spoke Italian, but she didn't uh, – she spoke a dialect of Italian, but she didn't read Italian. And she had certainly never read Dante. But just, like, the idea that, like, Dante was Catholic and Dante was Italian, it was, like – Dante was, like, one of us. So that was, right, like, good. Right. The idea that, like, Dante didn't, like – you know, wasn't a big fan of the papacy. Like, my grandma would have been, like, totally thrown off by that. Like, what do you mean he's not a big fan of the papacy? He's Italian, right? So there's, there's there was that aspect and then I think that I always had a sense – you and I have talked about this a little bit. But there's this kind of like – so my, my dad's family, his – my dad's grandparents were all born in Italy. Uh, my mom's family, like they came from Ireland in the 1850s forties, like during the famine. So in, in you know, like my parents like uh, literally grew up across the street, well, not quite across the street from each other, but they went to grammar school together. Right. I'm like the, you know, like the ethnic white dream. And there was always a sense that, you know, we had this kind of tradition, but we didn't really know much about it or like there was more to explore or something like that. Uh, and then I, ha- I have to say like in, in lots of ways, college was in lots of ways a disappointment because. I found that a lot of the stuff that I thought should be taken seriously wasn't taken seriously. And in fact, two of the professors that I studied with who took what I'll call my tradition, of course, it's not mine, but uh, in any possessive sense, but my tradition seriously were like two Jewish guys, right? right? (laughs) And so like uh, this Jewish philosophy professor, Samuel Fleischacker, who's now at University of Illinois, Chicago, Professor Matthew Krauss, who's at University of Cincinnati now, who's actually my thesis advisor, writing a thesis on St. Augustine, and then this great uh, former president of Williams College named Francis Oakley, who was himself, is himself Irish and Catholic. But I found that they, uh, so Fleischacker and and Krauss, that I could relate to them because like them, I took tradition seriously. And I found that a lot of the professors and certainly a lot of the students didn't. And so that kind of like thickness of uh, tradition and thickness of community um, and how those two things go all together and how kind of learning comes, becomes part of that. I actually, I find that deeply missing in the academy, um, even at a place, even at Catholic schools. I think a lot of times Catholic schools are almost embarrassed about their tradition, maybe even sort of like embarrassed by their, the communities that support
1: them. So like this actually is exactly where I wanted to jump in because so this is a totally naive question asked in ignorance. If I'm kind of coming at this from the perspective of, you know, sort of like a learned Jewish community. So here's a question I get all the time, given my, you know, my friendships and my Twitter personality and all that kind of a question I get very often is like, all right, I know what the Jewish tradition is, right? Like there's the Talmud, there's the medieval Jewish commentaries on the Bible, there's the medieval Jewish commentaries on the Talmud, there are the codes, you know, like there are the law codes, there are the commentaries on the law codes, there are the novellas on the law codes, there's the response literature, mm-hmm. all this stuff. Jewish tradition, and it's very easy to recognize it because it's written in Hebrew and, mm-hmm. you know, it takes, it's kind of starting, it's jumping off point is usually the Talmud, it's pretty easy to recognize. Mm -hmm. And there's this kind of sense, like if you're not Jewish and if you're and if you live in the West kind of broadly, not not too broadly defined, like not to include Japan in this case, which I think it sometimes does. But like if you're kind of like European American ish, right Mm -hmm. then and you're not Jewish, well, then like everything is your tradition, right? Like Mm -hmm. you have everything belongs to you, right? It's so it must be so wonderful to have to not have to have that anxiety about like what doesn't doesn't belong to me. So. The question I get so and I know that's not true, but -hmm. the question I get so often is like, what is what does it mean to kind of take the Catholic tradition seriously, for example? And I I think people listening to this podcast, whether you're Catholic yourself or whether you're Mm -hmm. Orthodox Jewish or whether you're something Mm -hmm. else, I think would benefit from hearing that. Like when you say take my tradition seriously, what's in the tradition? Like what do you see as sort of the the essentials of it? How does it shake out for you?
2: Yeah. So I'd say that there are a few different levels. So. Kind of fundamentally, let's say, kind of writing an essay on this a little bit uh, right now. What it means to take, let's say, the Christian tradition seriously from the get go is to say something like this dude, Jesus of Nazareth, died, rose from the dead, and in his dying and rising from the dead, he caused his followers to rethink what they knew about God previously. And importantly and essentially, what they knew about God previously has to include the law and the writing of the prophets, right? So there has to be a deep connection between Christians and Jews, number one. And of course differences, right? But the the Jewish tradition or Jews can't be ignored, right? Number one. Number two, I think that the Christian tradition has to include the encounter between Christian thought, let's say this like New Testament writing, etc., and what we today, for better or for worse, probably for worse, think about is, quote-unquote, Greek philosophy and, quote-unquote, Roman law. And so now how that all shakes out looks different in different ways, etc. But, you know, like I, I was once talking to a friend who said, like, oh, I'm teaching a class on Christian Platonism, and, you know, so the first reading we're doing is by Aristotle. And I said, well, you know, he's neither a Christian nor a Platonist. Um, <laughs> right <laughs> and so so I think number one it's like the focus on Jesus and understanding Jesus in light of the law and the prophets and the writings. number two, understanding how understanding the law and the prophets and the writings in Jesus um, kind of goes through the crucible of quote unquote greek thought and quote unquote Roman law," and I, I say Greek thought and Roman law kind of on purpose and then we have just like the whole kind of political historical political kind of result of all of that right but and i think this is important you know the more i talk about like the catholic intellectual attrition or like teaching in the department of catholic studies more i become aware that it's not just like this monolith um i teach a class at DePaul on like immigrant catholicism in chicago every now and again and like Mexican Catholics and African-American Catholics and Polish Catholics, like Polish-American Catholics, you know, have very distinct traditions that are like wonderful and like mutually reinforcing, etc., but like aren't the same. Right. And so I guess for me, and one of the things that I try to I try to focus my teaching on and my writing on is In a sense, just reminding people about that stuff, as opposed to saying, like, well, there is this Catholic intellectual tradition or Western philosophical tradition or yada, yada, yada. One of the things that I think is really important is just kind of free us from the tyranny of the present. And I think that we don't do that enough. And I think that too often, you know, we have kind of, you know, this thinker stands for the tradition or like this pope or this like, you know. It would be as absurd to say that Flannery O'Connor, a writer whom I love, represents the Catholic intellectual tradition as it would be to say that Philip Roth represents like the Jewish tradition, right? I mean, there, there are parts of it, right? But that's not and, – and I, and I think for me – and again, this kind of goes back to high school and one of the things I kind of saw lacking in college is that in, in important ways, thoughts have histories and the more we – and this I think one of the conversations you were having with Zohar um, – whatever, a few months ago. Thoughts have histories and it's our job as teachers and scholars and really just human beings to pay attention to those histories.
1: First of all, I love the idea of Aristotle as an example of Christian Platonism. Aristotle famously not Plato. Um, But but I actually want to start there. I I want to get to the point you just raised about the conversation with Zohar. uh, And I want to specifically talk about things like canon. But Plato and Aristotle are actually a good place to start. So you mentioned earlier that kind of part of the tradition that you're working within is to take seriously the encounter with, with Greek thought and Roman law, or Greek philosophy and Roman law. So in the Jewish tradition, that endeavor is present as well, but mm-hmm. it's always colored by the fact that Greece and I talked about this actually on the on the podcast we did a a while back with Anika Prather, mm-hmm. Greece is sort of like an infamous antagonist in Jewish history. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, and so, Greek knowledge sometimes, not always, but sometimes in sort of the Greek, the the Jewish intellectual tradition, is a a stand-in or a proxy for bad knowledge or for knowledge that can be used for evil ends or for, mm-hmm, or if not mm-hmm. for evil ends, then just for wrong ends. And so, reading Plato and Aristotle is always kind of colored with that. And that's always in the back of your mind. So now you have luminaries of the Jewish tradition who had incredibly deep admiration for Plato mm-hmm. and Aristotle, like as people like Maimonides sure. is a great example. Maimonides sure. thought yeah, Aristotle yeah, was, was a very important human being mm-hmm. uh, and Plato as well. But it's always kind of with that in the back of your mind. So when the Catholic tradition engages the pre-Christian greats of the mm-hmm. of the Greek tradition, or the Roman traditional, probably a little bit less, just there's just like a little bit less of a time. There's, you know, less of a time gap Mm -hmm. there. Is there a sense of like tension or is it more sort of just intellectual curiosity? Like when you're reading Aristotle or, or, or if you're reading Plato's accounts of Socrates or, you're, or or certainly any of the pre-Socratics, how are sure. you approaching this and what's the mindset?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that a couple things. First, I think I'm increasingly hesitant to talk about, quote unquote, Greek thought or, quote unquote, Plato or Aristotle or number one, because just the the rich differences between them and among them right second and because of that i'm really hesitant and increasingly so to well let me put it this way i think there's a kind of standard narrative that says something like oh thomas aquinas baptized aristotle and saint augustine baptized plato and and that's just wrong like it's wrong in like deep ways in the in the same way that like simply because the king james bible is in English, that doesn't make English like a sacral language. It just means that the tools of English can be English as a tool, like can help express God's word. Right. And so I think that for both in the cases of Plato and Aristotle, you know, they have insights that Christians can mine, but like the idea, it's important to remember that like the idea of the incarnation would make no sense at all to either of them. Right. And so, like, kind of very basic aspects of Christianity, like Plato and Aristotle would have just thought was crazy. Right. And uh, what my guy, Irenaeus, has a great line about Plato that says, well, the best you can say for him is that he's marginally more religious than Marcion. (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's, like, it's
2: like damning Plato with faint praise.
1: For those um, listening at home, Marcion is kind of like the Jafar of the Orthodox Christian yes, tradition, right? Yeah, so, yeah, like, exactly.
2: Exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, and I, I think, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Annika. I don't, I don't know her personally, but um, I, I'm a big fan of the stuff that she's up to. And, you know, I, I think that, and this is something you and I have talked about slightly in different contexts, but on the one hand, I think all of us should be proud of our traditions, like proud of what they've accomplished, proud of what they can do. And that pride should allow for selectively using what's outside, what's quote unquote outside of our tradition to better explain or appreciate our tradition. Right. But that pride should also help us guard against feeling as though our tradition is like lacking. Like, well, if we don't do X, Y, or Z, then, you know, somebody's better than we are. And I think that that's a really dangerous thing. And I think that uh, especially when you're talking about, like, you know, the history of Jewish thought or the history of Christian thought in whichever its forms, you know, or the history of Muslim thought or whatever, um, like there are so many resources there already that the idea that like you need some kind of necessary supplement strikes me as frankly impious. But to to put it in a scholarly key, um, just like bad scholarship.
1: So I so that's another point I wanted to come to, mm-hmm. which is I like to think, and, and and the Jewish tradition kind of furnishes a lot of resources for doing this. I like to think in terms of the unique contributions that various traditions with their unique, self-contained and internally coherent histories and traditions can make to the betterment and improvement of wider society. If I'm thinking like, what are the sort of signature mm-hmm. Jewish contributions that perhaps others could have reasoned their way towards, but that Jews were kind of the Jewish people were kind of uniquely well positioned to offer. So the two, although they're really one, but the two that I would posit would be sort of a fierce critique uh, and uncompromising critique of idolatry, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the one of the great contributions to human civilization. The other is uh, the other is kind of supplying a thesis of liberty. Which itself is is phrased as a critique of idolatry that ended up serving the causes of republics in the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries. So the you mm-hmm. know the last episode of this podcast, we explored that with Eric Nelson from Harvard. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way in which kind of rabbinic literature with the rise of Christian Hebraism furnishes this sort of unique and surprising argument in favor of republics and against monarchies you wouldn't have had otherwise, and in fact, didn't exist before kind of the discovery in Christian uh, mm-hmm. Europe of of rabbinic literature. Um, so those are kind of like the two signature, you know, things that I think about. And if you wanted to add a third, it would be the importance of story. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's such a narrative tradition. So mm-hmm. if I'm going out there, as you just said, and kind of taking the Catholic tradition seriously, not just as something that exists and is fine. And now we can ask about how we absorb from the world around right, us. Mm-hmm. But what is the Catholic tradition by, by your lights kind of bringing to the table uh, or bringing to society that others Either can't bring or have a harder time bringing. Like, what is mm-hmm. Catholic tradition uniquely positioned, or, or at least well positioned, to bring to the wider society?
2: Yeah, I think that the Catholic tradition, kind of from the get go, from like Matthew twenty five, has a universalist impulse that isn't based on race or language. In a way that certainly there there are aspects of you know uh, in Genesis we see this with Abraham, but you know the the christian people are able to are, aren't are tied to a particular language right so you know there's no greek does not have the same or or syriac or latin don't have the same power in christianity that hebrew does in judaism right or uh, arabic has in islam right so that's and and i like how you put kind of two sides of the same point so on the one hand there's this kind of universalizing aspect that it's it's not just one people it's it's the Lumen gentium, like like to all the peoples. And then as a result of that, there's a constant search for synthesis, right? And so precisely because if you take the logos of John seriously, then like all human reason has, as it were, you know, this isn't quite the right way to put it, but has, as it were, a kind of divine spark. And so There is, you know, Terence famously, Terence, uh, the Roman author famously said, like, I'm a human being, nothing human is alien to me. And I think that in a deep way for Christianity, um, especially in its Roman Catholic tradition, although even as soon as you say Roman Catholic, it's kind of limited in in some way, but uh, let's say non-Protestant traditions, non-Greek Orthodox traditions, is always interested in questions of synthesis, in questions of the, uh, to to use the phrase that the great 16th century Saint Ignatius of Loyola, who founded the Jesuit order, that one can find God in all things. And I think that this is is a tricky thing, um, but I think it's an important thing. The line between sacred and profane in Christianity, I think, is blurrier than it is in Judaism and Islam. And I think that blurriness actually is a result of this kind of universalizing impulse. And so we can talk about a kind of Christian literature, a Catholic literature, a Catholic history, a Catholic psychology, a Catholic philosophy and theology in a way that precisely because the kind of boundaries between sacred and profane, between Christian and not Christian, kind of break down. And and there's certainly, yeah, there are certainly like Christian theologians who would say salvation is for all people. Right. It's not like the church and and maybe even saying there are ways to read St. Augustine saying this, too, like the the city of God includes not just like the visible church. It can include much more than that.
1: It's not an accident, I think, that the great kind of really like 19th and 20th, really 20th century, great Orthodox Jewish theologians who were interested in questions of synthesis or encounter or confrontation or what have you between uh the jewish tradition and and kind of the wider world took the catholic intellectual tradition very seriously augustine aquinas and so on and so forth so as we're talking about this one of the concepts that sort of hovers in the background is the question of canon so when you talk about a tradition, you're already talking about things that are in the tradition and things that are out of the tradition. Right, exactly. Uh, and one of the great thinkers who contributed to the development of the idea of canon uh, is a thinker that you've studied, mm-hmm. uh, namely Irenaeus. So this is kind of a two-parter, and we can take it sure. in two parts. But number sure, one, sure. Uh, how do you think about the question of, of canon? within the Catholic intellectual tradition. Like, how do you figure out what's in, how do you figure what's out? Especially mm-hmm. if you have that blurriness that you talked about. Right, and then right afterwards, right. and we can take it separately, I'd love to talk about, like, make the case for Irenaeus as an important thinker here in the 21st century, but let's take it one at a time, right? How do we deal with canon then let's get to Irenaeus?
2: Actually, I think, I think I'll think i do it backwards. And, and here I'll get slightly biographical because I think that helps too. So on the question of canon, uh, I'm sure you did this too, but I, I would spend a lot of time in high school and college talking about like five best Knicks players of all time, five best Mets of all time, right? Like, you know, is Willie Mays really better than Babe Ruth? Is Willie Mays really better than Hank Aaron? Yada, yada, yada. Why, right? Like what, what's the, what's the rule? What's the criterion on which we base this stuff? You know, like best Matador Records albums, best Beatles albums, why, 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 right? And- There's
1: a reason we, why High Fidelity was like my favorite movie.
2: Exactly, right? <laughs> exactly. That's a top five, top five records, exactly. And, and for precisely that reason, we need- a kind of a rule to measure like what we're saying to make what we're saying coherent we need a kind of rule a language to talk about that it's why in college i got really into wittgenstein like a kind of like a very intense like Wittgenstein phrase phase precisely because like i was like super into rules and like following rules and language games and you know stuff making sense in that way um it's why i got really into like virtue ethics when i was in college as well and so in grad school, I had gone into grad school thinking that I was going to do a dissertation on, like, Thomas Aquinas and Hegel or maybe Augustine and Hegel, precisely on these questions of, like, system systematization, right? And so, like, uh, universality, kind of taking, like, a thinker like Thomas or Augustine and pairing him with a thinker like Hegel because all three of those thinkers are really interested in kind of big-picture stuff. And so that's what I wanted to do. Um, but then I realized, well, you know, that's a little bit too much to chew, biting off too much uh, for dissertation. And, you know, go, again, going back to what I said earlier, I had this thing that I wanted to do classics, and I wanted to do theology, and I wanted to do philosophy, I kind of wanted to do it all. And I found in Irenaeus a thinker who um, was less enamored, let me put it that way, with Plato than other Christian thinkers that I had studied were. And I was really interested in why is he less interested in Plato. And I saw in reading him some kind of like, Tricks.
1: Just for context. Yeah. So Irenaeus, sure. Bishop of Lyon, second century, yeah. uh, second century AD or the common era, important, you know, church father, uh right, right. figure of the tradition. Okay, sorry, just setting the stage yeah, for yeah, those yeah, who yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, aren't
2: so he he lived roughly either one twenty or one forty to roughly two hundred. Uh was born in what's now Turkey. Spent some time in Rome and then ended up in uh, Lyon. But he came to France, Gaul at the time, right after a big persecution. So Roman authorities had massacred the Christians. It was a Greek-speaking community in 177, and Irenaeus writes this long, very long treatise called the Against the Heretics. It's five volumes long, and I just became fascinated with this. And again, like in terms of criteria and stuff. I really became interested in how does it work? Like, how is it structured, right? Because it's the kinds of things that I'm interested in. Like, how does it, you know, how does it all fit together? And then on this question of, I I realized that Irenaeus is probably the first, I mean, there are hints of it in the New Testament, but Irenaeus is really the first thinker to take this idea of canon, C-A-N-O-N, seriously. And in learning about him, I came to realize that, this idea of canon was originally came from a Greek word, literally meaning ruler. Like you know, like you know, when we today like how many inches or centimeters or something. And for Irenaeus, the canon was basically what today I think Christians would be most familiar with as as a creed, like a list of statements, uh, which itself took a narrative form, right? About how who God was, the relationship between God and Christ, and how God works in history. Right. And it's this kind of brief, you know, you can kind of say it in 30 seconds or so statement of belief. And the Bible is super confusing. It's really long. It's very hard to understand. But if you keep this little thumbnail sketch of the Bible in your head, it doesn't mean you'll say everything that's right about the Bible, but it does, it will protect you from saying things that are wrong in the Bible. So if, for example, you read the Bible and you think this dude, Jesus of Nazareth, was really talking about how he was like bringing secret messages about a God who was above the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, right? Then you're just reading the Bible wrong. You just don't get it, right? Now, did Jesus have blue eyes or brown eyes? Doesn't matter, right? Like you can, whatever you want to say about that, that's fine, right? But it doesn't give you all the answers, but it does protect you from saying things that are stupid, right? In the same way, you can say that um, Willie Mays is a better player than Babe Ruth, right? Like that, that's a legitimate argument to have. But if you say, you know, Raphael Santana of the 1986 New York Mets is a better player than Willie Mason, oh, then we're just like talking about the wrong, we're, we're not having the right conversation, right? And so uh, I became interested in Irenaeus kind of precisely for this reason, because uh, he was the first to, as it were, lay down what we might call the kind of grammatical rules of Christian interpretation, Right. And so it allows you to say all sorts of things, but it does protect you against from saying things that are, quote unquote, wrong. Right. And that the and this is important, too, that these rules, as it were, these rules come from the community themselves itself and the rules are enacted in community, lived in community. And again, something you and I have talked about a little bit before, um, these rules have, as it were, a liturgical context. And so that's why I kind of got into Irenaeus in the first place, because again, with uh, the great Matthew Krauss at University of Cincinnati now, like I, I wrote my undergraduate thesis on Augustine's On Christian Teaching, it does very much the same thing. And Augustine famously, and I think this is absolutely right, says, if you're reading the Bible, and you read a passage, and that passage, reading that passage doesn't help you to love more, then you've misunderstood the passage. Right, And so Augustine in On Christian Teaching is also kind of offering interpretive rules. So that's kind of how I got into Irenaeus and why I continue to think he's super important because of questions of liturgy and history and interpretation, etc. But it's also, and, and I mean, we can go to your first question now, but I thought you might say something.
1: No, no, I think that's that's I think that's super important. That that actually leads, I think, into that first question of how do you deploy the canon now in thinking about kind of the wider world and engaging with all these sorts of other things.
0: Yeah,
2: I think that one of the problems
1: is that too often
2: in higher education we let me come at this a little bit obliquely. Um, One of my favorite theologians uh, of the twentieth century was a. Dominican priest, so a follower of St. Dominic, like they wear wear white. He was Irish heritage, lived in the UK, but actually had an Irish passport, and his name was Herbert McCabe. And McCabe has a brilliant line, and I'd be interested to know what you think of this, because I think it actually is quite similar to what you said your grandfather had said about creation. McCabe once said that you don't understand anything about prayer unless you understand that prayer is a complete waste of time with God.
0: And I think
2: that, which is to say, like, prayer doesn't like it, isn't about getting you somewhere. It's not about, like, you know,
1: it's not an ATM machine, right? Like you put in your car.
2: Exactly, exactly. You know, prayer isn't about you informing God. Prayer's about God forming you, right? And I think that you can actually apply the same kinds of principles to, like, liberal arts education in general, and especially, like, the quote unquote Catholic intellectual tradition, but also I would say in, in a slightly different form in the Jewish intellectual tradition, the Muslim intellectual tradition, you know, if this is just like a couple classes you have to take in your four years as an undergrad, or maybe there's some like weirdo professor at your secular school who like, you know, teaches a few folks, right? Then you really like don't get it, right? And because you're you don't see your education as being integrative, right? And you don't see your education as being small c Catholic, which is to say universal, which is to say, you know, we have very, very few universities in the United States these days, which is to say we have very few places that talk about a unity of knowledge and how that knowledge might relate to God, might relate to ethics, might relate to the broader community, etc. I mean, we have all sorts of concerns about ethics, but they're always situational and they have very little to do with like how people actually live um like that the you know you had that brilliant thing on twitter a few weeks ago like how often do we have professors talking about like how great their kids are like very rarely right like like your most moral decisions are like who you're going to marry like how you're going to raise your children and we don't talk about that at all in college right and in fact the i don't like the word religion but the faith traditions of which we're a part like have a lot to say about that and it's really good stuff and for all sorts of reasons uh, I don't begrudge people this, but people see their kind of college educations as like stepping stones and they don't see their college educations as what they really should be, which is like wasting time with your friends and learning in a community that will make you more virtuous.
1: So, I actually that that's a good that's a good transition point because one of the things that I worry about is how the future of higher education plays into this. In other words, when we tell the story of higher education, we sometimes can tell the story as like just a a history of how to instruct people and how to do things. Right. So it used to be you learn how to be a farmer from your dad. Now you learn how to be a programmer from a professor. Right. Mm -hmm. Another Mm -hmm. way to tell the story is, you know, this was, you know, higher education was like, the way out of dogma, right? Which is sure. a very modern and like weird way to tell the story, but you could mm-hmm. tell it, right? Like in mm-hmm. other words, we're trying to rescue people from these weirdo religious communities or other kind of cultish right. backgrounds and give them the truth, right? Right, and me, right? And that's where you usually see like people bringing in polls about like voter ID amongst college grads, right? But the way that you tell the story, or at least by implication, we're telling the story just now is that a university actually is serving a, a moral purpose. It's shaping you with a particular attitude towards the beauty and the bounty of God's creation. Mm-hmm. And it's actually not incidental that so many of the most important universities that still exist today, and certainly when universities were founded, were all kind of religious institutions. And even in the history of this country, like Yale and Harvard were meant to produce like good theologians and Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. ministers Mm -hmm. so that America could be a better place. Are those things unbundling? And if not, if they are unbundling, how do we replace this? And and is there a way to maybe not unbundle them I was like is there a way to to salvage or maybe improve this model for the future like what's the future of endowing young people with that kind of religious small r religious like mm-hmm. orientation towards the wider world yeah
2: i think that it's worth noting how how quick this has all happened and I think that it's, I know a little bit about this. Um, it's, it's worth using kind of religion departments at universities as a microcosm for so much of what's happened, right? So John Rawls, the famous a political philosopher, was an undergraduate at Princeton. And he actually wrote his undergraduate thesis. Eric Gregory, the professor at Princeton, uh, with whom I'm friends, like I spent, as, as you did, I spent some time in Princeton because my wife did her PhD there. Rawls like did a, an undergraduate thesis on like a theodicy question. And until very recently, you could study without too much difficulty, like real Christian theology and also real Jewish theology at Princeton, right? Like there, there was like a real curriculum there that people could like my at Williams where I went, you know, it wouldn't be unusual for there to be like a a guy who was a chaplain, but also have a PhD and like, you know, teach Christian theology, you know, um, probably the person was Protestant, but like, New Aquinas and Augustine and, and also New Maimonides and, and Buber and et cetera, you know, and Bart and stuff, right? But then for good, good, good reasons, like in the 60s and, you know, with the Vietnam War and stuff, people realized that they needed to study Asia more and like, quote unquote, world religions, a term I don't like, you know, became important, right? So that's good, right? But what happened was the, the guy who did Christianity retired and then the folks who, who replaced him uh, weren't just didn't have the knowledge, like didn't know that stuff, and so they were focused, for understandable reasons, on kind of publishing and like uh, new scholarship, yada yada yada. And so all of a sudden, you didn't have anyone in the universities themselves, and the, the same can be said of philosophy departments, the same can be said of English departments and history departments. It's hard to live out a tradition if you don't have anyone on the faculty who knows about the tradition, right? And I think in so many places, really good schools, right? Like Williams is a really good school, like Yale and Princeton and Harvard, like these are really good places, but they don't have anybody who just knows the stuff. And then the board of trustees and the people who run the school, like don't know the stuff either. And so it's really hard to have a community of learning focused on the pursuit of capital T truth and realizing the great contribution to understanding capital T truth that different faith traditions have given us. Well, it's hard to do that if you don't know what, if you don't have anybody on the faculty studying and teaching that stuff, right? And that's that's just the case now. So where, I mean, your, your question is important, where does it go from here? I could actually see... A few different things happening. First, I think the, the sorts of things like the, our, our favorite Catherine Institute, uh, the Catherine Project, excuse me, the Catherine Project, it's just really, really important work, just like getting people together and like having them learn stuff and over friendship, etc. Uh, you know, there's like the Lumen Christi Institute, uh, the inter, uh, next to the University of Chicago that does similar things. So that's number one, just kind of small, uh, the Paideia Institute, which is into kind of keeping Greek and Latin learning alive for people right? So that's one way. Second, I do think, and this is going to sound completely counterintuitive, but maybe comforting in some ways. I think that some of the schools that are so wealthy, like just so, so wealthy, there will come a point where they just have to be free going forward, right? Like they can't, like Harvard University could be free right now. Um, And so many others could, are pretty close to that. And uh, so much of my high school experience, so Regis is weird because it's the only free private school in America. But so much of it was amazing precisely because we all of us just recognize it as gift. And it was just like, well, once you have that freedom, not that you don't like take care of things and you don't care about things, but things are just in a different perspective when everything's free. You know, when you realize that everything's just a gift to you, right? I think it's a good thing for Christians and Jews and Muslims to realize, too, because Christians and Jews and Muslims believe that. But I don't know if the university as this kind of pre-professional stepping stone that uh where you kind of like four years of craziness or like you know taking out lots of loans or whatever i don't know that that'll exist in quite the same way in 30 years like will very very wealthy colleges and universities still exist in 30 years absolutely and will those places continue to educate people absolutely right uh and will you know our politicians and business leaders etc come disproportionately come from those places absolutely but I do think that now is a time for colleges and universities, especially ones connected to faith traditions, to like think through, like, what does that faith tradition mean to us? Because probably, in most cases, let's say between 1975 and 2000, they probably didn't think about that much.
1: That's a great point. That leads to, to my last question, which mm-hmm. is, in the Jewish community, we think about this a lot and we're anxious about it a lot, I actually am am quite a bit more optimistic uh, Mm -hmm. than your average person uh, about sort of like the future of traditionalism in Gen Z. Mm -hmm. How do things look from the Catholic perspective, whether whether in an American context or an international context? Like, where are you on the future of Catholic traditionalism in Gen Z?
2: I think a lot of it depends on what you mean by traditionalism in the Catholic context. Fair point. So I think that, I'll, I'll say this, so DePaul is a Catholic school, but it's not Catholic in the way that like Notre Dame is Catholic. Like you can't step on the Notre Dame campus without kind of recognizing Notre Dame's Catholicism, whereas you could at DePaul, like, you kind of go four years at DePaul without knowing it.
1: Notre Dame is wearing a yarmulke, you know, Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it's a
2: young Jewish girl is on the top of the top of the highest building there, you know. So um, <laughs> uh, so I teach a lot of intro classes, which I love doing, and GK Chesterton has this famous line that Christianity hasn't been tried and found wanting Christianity hasn't been tried <laughs> and I think that when I teach the kind of quote-unquote basics of Catholicism to undergraduates more often than not they're like I never knew that right and and these are students who you know are have you know Polish American backgrounds Mexican American backgrounds Irish American backgrounds, et cetera, who are kind of like in some ways grew up in the the faith. But in terms of traditionalism, I would say that, you know, from a Christian perspective, like Jesus and the law and the prophets and the writings, like it's a pretty good story, right? And the more students know about it, the more they find it appealing, right? And I think that too often Catholicism in the US, this is probably true for Christianity, I'll just stick to Catholicism. Catholicism in the U.S., for however long, right, certainly as long as I can remember, has been this weird melange of, like, really uninspiring liturgy, uninspiring prayer life, on the one hand, with, like, really ham-fisted moralizing on the other, and neither of those things is appealing to anybody. Maybe it's appealing if you're like kind of into like scoring like political points in terms of electoral politics or something. But for the vast majority of people it's incredibly unappealing. And so my students find it fascinating. Quick story on this, right? So uh, in in my Introduction to Catholicism class, I read Vincent de Paul, of all people, right? So, and he kind of, some, some of the instructions he has for his community. And, and the, the students are kind of amazed by the fact that, like, you know, they pray a lot. And I said, well, you know, like, first thing in the morning, you pray. Just before you go to bed, you pray. You go to mass, you like say the divine office, yada yada. And I said, like, you know, it's probably you know, four or five hours where they're praying. And they're just like, look at me gobsmacked. And then my little trick is to say is to have one of them take you know his or her iPhone out of and say okay you know Jill like check your phone you know go on the go on the uh, and and how much time have you spent on your phone today yeah and this is like let's say an eleven o'clock class and she said five hours I was like what time did you get up right (laughs) and she's like well you know I was up late last night blah 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 and I was like what did you do on your phone for five hours like well you know like you were on Instagram weren't you and like TikTok blah blah um and it's like well Vincent de Paul spends 4 hours worshiping and giving thanks to the love that is the reason why there is something rather than nothing and he does that so that he can go out and love more you spend 4 or 5 or 6 hours on your phone worshiping Instagram right <laughs> who's the crazy who's the crazy one and i think that the kind of importance of prayer, they really get prayer then, you know? And again, this idea of like wasting time with God. And then the idea that like prayer takes work because they had never been told that. Right. And sometimes I'll often have like a veteran in my class and I'll talk to the veteran about like ask, it's usually male, you ask him about like basic and like, what do you do in boot camp and yada, yada, yada. And he'll explain like, well, we did this and this. and And I said, well, you were a different person after that, weren't you? And Every single time. Absolutely, I was, right? Well, that's what prayer is like. When you encourage and you provide the resources for a prayer life and a liturgical life that asks something of you and helps you get transformed, right? I'll I'll use like gym metaphors too because they often do a lot of exercising or whatever. And like, yeah, you go to the gym, the, the bar doesn't change, the weights don't change, but you change, right? When you pray, God doesn't change, but God changes you, right? And so- Without getting into the, the various quite literally inter-Nicene battles of like d- traditionalism in, in uh, Catholic circles, I will say that I'm, I'm certain, and I think I share your optimism in this regard, the more we present to our students the richness and, and really the demands— of a rich liturgical life and also how that rich liturgical life feeds into a life of the mind and the life of the mind feeds into a rich liturgical life and that these things go together, right? Like that's what universities should be doing. And I think that, you know, in a quote unquote secular university, I don't like that word either, but I think secular universities aren't really being universities unless they provide their students the opportunity to explore these kinds of questions. And I think increasingly they don't. But I think that the ones who will flourish going forward absolutely will.
1: This was exactly the kind of absolute fire that I wanted from you to end this off. That was incredible. Amen, Scott. That was awesome. Thank you uh, so much for coming on a good faith effort.
2: Thank you so much for having me. As I said, it's a real honor to be here.
1: to the Good Faith Effort Studios. We've come a long way, baby. But when all is said and done, this is exactly the kind of conversation I think it's ideal for each of us to be having. I mean, Scott and I come from different religious traditions, each with their respective dignity, coherence, and beauty. And... While it's important to ask, what can we each learn from the wider world of wisdom around us? It's just as, if not even more important to challenge ourselves, to ask, how can we take the wisdom of our traditions and communities and bring it out to the wider world around us? Anyway, thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the pod, then please be awesome. Head into Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts and give us a rating, five stars only because it really helps people find the show. Anyway, this is Ari Lam making a good faith effort.
0: I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul Shop podcast presented by Benet Zion. Follow us on Twitter at G Faith Effort. Follow Ari at Ari Lam and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about Soulshop, Shop, follow Soulshop Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at soulshop underscore studios and check out soulshopstudios.com.